Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on today's show is Daniel Harari, the chairman and CEO of Lectra. Lectra is a 1.5 billion euro market cap company based in Paris, France. Lectra provides software, automated cutting equipment, and other services that enable customers to automate and optimize the design, development, and manufacturing of many different products. Specifically, the company has built a leading position in the automotive, fashion, and furniture categories. Daniel has been the CEO of Lectra since 2002 and has overseen a significant amount of revenue and EBITDA growth during his tenure. Given the company's track record, I was very interested to hear from Daniel about his background and how he got involved with Lectra, the company's move to more of a software as a service or SaaS business model, the rationale for recently making Lectra's largest acquisition ever, business model elements that allow for high gross margins and customer retention, and how the company's culture has evolved over time. As a quick disclosure, CoStreet does not own Lectra shares. This was our first European listed company, and we are excited to expose our listener base to companies that are not listed in the U.S., We hope this is the first of many European compounders who appear on the show. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Lectra's chairman and CEO, Daniel Harari. As always, we will start this podcast at a pivotal moment in the company's history. Looking back over the last 20 years, Lectra has not been that acquisitive, just some smaller deals here and there. However, in March of this year, you signed an agreement to acquire a company called Gerber Technology for 300 million euros. Can you talk about why now was the right time to make a large acquisition and why Gerber was the right target? So we have been competitors with Gerber for all our lives. And for the last 30 years, from time to time, every three to five years, we discuss about an acquisition. Well, in the 90s, it was more like Gerber acquiring Lectra. In the in the 2000 years, it was more like a merger between Equal and then we at the end, we decided to acquire Gerber. So the main reason why it was the right timing is uh, several. Uh, it's a conjunction of several planets. Uh, the first thing is that uh, I thought that during the COVID year and at a point where the business was down, it was the right moment to make a move. Uh, the second one is that AIP, who was the sh- previous shareholder of Gerber, did a good job at repositioning Gerber before Gerber's strategy was too far away from Lectra. And they did half of the way 
to converge with our strategy. Uh, and then I thought that it was very important to leverage everything that we have developed for the industry 4.0 to have a wider install base of customers, especially in the US where we had a, a weaker base than Gerber. Interesting, and, and I wanna get into the geographic expansion but um, so you said AIP had done a nice job. Um, and AIP is a middle market private equity firm, by the way. Um, and so oftentimes I think private equity companies, I mean, maybe it's unfair to say, but sometimes they starve the companies a little bit and, it, you know, they lever them up and then they, you know, they spit them out and they're not, they've been underinvested in. How did you get comfortable with the fact that they had, you know, uh, it sounds like strategically positioned Gerber well and invested enough in R&D and operating expenses? Well, they did it more than other private equity firms. I wouldn't say they would they have done it as much as we did, but uh, they invest more in R&D than the years before. They also develop a politic of uh, uh, customer service with more contracts and more proximity with the customers. And of course, they, they, they cut costs as much as they could. Uh, but uh, this is more a plus today because we can re-increase the team and by merging the teams in the different countries, we have a stronger position. So globally, the fact that they did not cut so much the R&D or even they invest more than before uh, and they developed this, this policy around develop, uh, uh, sending more contracts and providing customers with more services was a good move forward. And there's an interesting cultural element that you just brought up is that you know, at times Gerber would have maybe been the acquirer of Lectra, and now it's kind of the tables have turned. Is that, is, are there people from Gerber who remember those times? And, and maybe it's like a little bit of an interesting transition and, and, and like being a kind of acquired by the upstart. Is that, is that an issue you have to deal with? Or are those people mostly kind of passed in and gone, gone on to other roles? No, the, we have people that are with Gerber for several uh, uh, decennies and uh, uh, they have been there for 10, 20, 30 years, but globally they remember all this. Nevertheless, uh, we took over the, the position of number one in 2000. We overpassed Gerber at that time. Uh, we also developed a different strategy uh, from a business standpoint. We developed a different business model. Uh, Lecra One Premium decided to, to uh, leverage its offer through customers who would understand this value and so increase its prices have very strong gross margins compared to, to Gerber and also develop recurring revenue to cover all the costs. So this strategy put us in a much stronger position uh, than any of our competitors, especially uh, uh, during the last years where, where the, the, the economy was impacted by the COVID. And one more question on the deal before we get in a little more to your business. Um, so if I go back to 2020, the America's portion of your revenue looked like it was about 26%. The Gerber deal increases your exposure to the U.S. What was, and you mentioned this in, in your response, like what, was, what was attractive to you about like having more access to, and exposure to the U.S.? Well, Gerber customers are very loyal, and that's one of the characteristics. When we acquired Gerber, we could, we could see that customers were loyal and the teams was very experimented. So combining all these, this means that we have connection with customer that would buy other product lines from Lectra that we have developed uh, over the last few years and did not exist at Gerber. So we could leverage a wider install base, especially in the US, where a certain number of customers are ready to move forward with some innovations and they were not like our customers before. 
So, so let's dig into your business a little bit. Um, so my guess is that a lot of our listeners are not really familiar with this company. So maybe just describe your core offerings and talk about your end markets uh, that you serve, electrical, sorry, electronic components, raw materials, transport, and, and health situations. Maybe just, just give us a, a, a snapshot of the company to, to give people some context. So Lectra was born in 73, and we were only focusing on fashion. We first developed software for the uh, what we call computer-aided design software, CAD, uh, which are for product development. And then we add equipment for manufacturing, software and equipment for the cutting room to cut parts. Uh, as an example, to cut all kinds of clothes. And in 1993, we decided to expand our activities to automotive and furniture uh, because we dress the interior of a car exactly as we dress a person or we dress the furniture exactly as we dress a person. So there was a lot of common technologies and common uh, functionalities to these three, three markets. Uh, that's how we end up being present mainly in these three markets. There are others like aeronautics, but there are not many planes. So it's not a significant market uh, for us compared to automotive, as an example. Uh, but globally speaking, what we put in place in 93 was a strategy to move from being in CAT CAM for fashion to covering all the product lifecycle in uh, for, for the market we serve, serving fashion, automotive, and furniture. And also we were present in many countries, but we decided at that time that we would be present everywhere in the world. So since 93, Lectra have developed this strategy of being present worldwide, covering these three markets for everything from the ID to selling the product for fashion. And in furniture and automotive, we, we start later, we start at dressing the car and dressing uh, the furniture, but for the rest, we do exactly the same thing. So this was our strategy for some years. And this explains why also we overpassed Gerber that was more focused on, on some product lines. Compounders is brought to you in partnership with Tegas. We created Compounders to uncover the lessons and frameworks of the best capital compounders in the world. And if you are a professional investor, VC or operator, and you appreciate the deep research into the businesses explored on this podcast, check out tegas.co slash compounders. With Tegas, you can learn about any company directly from former execs, current customers, and industry experts, all of which are in position to offer unique insights into company's growth, its customer value, and its competition. What makes Tegas different is that you don't have to lead your own expert calls. The platform offers instant access to the world's largest collection of investor-led call transcripts on companies such as Compounders, Guests, Viasat, Element Solutions, and Avid Technology. All you have to do is log in and you'll get instant access to nearly 25,000 expert call transcripts. And the best part, the Tegas collection grows larger with each investor and company that joins. Still want to do your own expert calls? Tegas is the right solution. Experts that are just as good or better than what you'd find on other networks, but starting at just $300 per call, not the $1,000 or more others charge. If you're ready to go deeper on the next compounding business, head to tegas.co slash compounders for a free trial. I can personally say that having access to the Tegas platform and Rolodex of experts has fundamentally changed the quality of due diligence Coast Street does on both new and existing ideas. When I think about the growth that you've seen, 
and you know the ability to pass Gerber and all that is that what what need was being unmet by the existing solutions that has allowed you to I, I assume kind of re-engineer the way whether it's a fashion company or an automotive company quote unquote dresses the you know dresses the car or a person in 2015-2016 we read about everything that was existing on our markets uh, on the technology market and we did our own study and we came to the conclusion that a certain number of mega trends would change our markets the first mega trend was the move uh, of china from a production country to a retail country where people would buy uh, more than in the us or more than in europe in the coming years the second one was the arrival of millennials which are uh, digital natives that would look at the computer programs very differently at the internet, at the social medias, as consumer, but also as workers in the different companies. Uh, and then uh, we also consider the digitalization of all the process would play a significant role in the future. And the last uh, conclusion we took was that industry for the zero be will become a major trend. So I know that in the US, the word industry for the zero is not so much used. In fact, uh, uh, in France, we're speaking about the, the factory of the future or the industry of the future. Uh, but the industry for the zero is the term that was used by the German government to define what the industry would look like. And there has been many advanced studies, globally speaking, is connecting consumers, product development centers, manufacturing centers through smart uh, equipment uh, that would connect the people and uh, also the, the different uh, take into account the different process automatically. So industry for that zero is roughly based on four technology, the internet of things, having equipment or software connected to a central site, which we do since 2007. So we have been with cutters that have been connected to our expertise centers since today, more than close to 15 years. Um, then, uh, the cloud and all our development are in the cloud since 2015. And today, two thirds of our new products are fully cloud-based. Then also artificial intelligence. And in many of our products, we have a lot of algorithms and, and uh, artificial intelligence and also expert because we find out that combining artificial intelligence and experts would help. Okay. And uh, the fourth uh, technology is big data, where uh, it means it's data that are not structured, like data on consumers. You cannot get something very logic, but you need to abstract uh, the substance of that to be able to apply your algorithms. So artificial intelligence is based on these four technology. The prerequisite is that you have digitalized the process. And after that, you go step by step where at the beginning you take you, you can analyze the data to take decision, then progressively the, 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 the software or the machine will take the decision on their own. And at the end, all the balancing when you take an order between the different factories, the capacity to respond and so on, is completely automated. So a certain number of customers are at step one and some others are at step two or step three. But, uh, so our offer today enable this quest to industry for the zero, which we believe will take some time. And we consider that the faster uh, growing company will be there in 2030, but it will be installed progressively over the next 10 years. 
great. That's a great description of Industry 4.0. And, and we're going to talk about, um, you know, so, more software stuff and we're going to talk about margins. But I'm also interested, you know, what was the vision that you saw? I mean, it just like it feels like you guys were ahead of the curve, at least relative to a lot of companies we, you know, we, we follow, whether it's Internet of Things, whether it's being in the cloud and having everything cloud based so early on. What what was it that you saw that allowed you to kind of anticipate where your customers were going and where the industry was going to go? First of all, we always work with the vision of what LACRA should be in 10 years. And then we have strategic roadmap, uh, which are three years roadmap. So we had the first one from 2017 to 2019, where our goal was to put the product on the market. And I will give a good example of how to use Industry 4.0 with one of the products we launched at that time. Then the second roadmap, 2020-2022, to spread the technology and evangelize. And we are in the middle of that process. So uh, to give a good example, we can take uh, made-to-measure clothes or fashion on demand where you manufacture only when the consumer has made choices. So we first have a product which is developed not to make uh, one kind of, uh, let's say, of shirt, but to have a shirt that can be adjust to the, uh, uh, the size of the person, the body of the person, which guarantee the right fit, the right look, also, the consumer can, can decide on options, what kind of color, what kind of, of pockets they want, and so on, and the different fabrics that they would like. And the system uh, is composed of a, a platform on the internet, which will take the information from the consumer and from the product development, mix all that, and define a, a specific product for the person automatically. So after that, we have cutters that are connected to this platform that are smart cutters. So the platform send, send instruction to the cutter saying, okay, you need to produce this shirt with these fabrics. To, be, to optimize things, we need to mix and match the different orders so that the, the orders with the same fabric are regrouped. We can that way optimize the fabric better. And then the fabric is, is a, a live material. So uh, there are defaults. It's never if you have a line, it's never straight. Uh, uh, and we have a cutter that would scan the fabric, analyze the defaults in real time, and adjust the production plan to the will of the designer. So the cutter will take general instruction from the platform that are optimized through algorithms, and also apply its own algorithms to review the plan that is proposed to adapt it to the reality of the fabric. All this goes very fast because if a consumer enters into a, a shop, we could produce 30 seconds after uh, in uh, another place. So if somebody goes in a shop in New York, we can produce in Vietnam 30 seconds later. But in reality, if you do that, you lose money because the, uh, the, the logic is to regroup the orders so that you have a critical mass to optimize. And in general, we know this critical mass is about one week of orders. So we would have algorithms that would say, okay, until we reach this level of productivity, we don't produce. But if you commit to deliver in eight days, as an example, then the eight days we force the orders into the, the backlog so that it's produced. All this is done automatically with the platform discussing directly with the cutter that, and taking into account all that has been defined at the design product, uh, at the design level of the, uh, of the product to fine tune all the characteristics of the garment. The difference with what is done today, as an example, 
if people do mid to measure garment, each garment is viewed as a, a unique product that is conceived for the consumer. Here, it's not the case. We would conceive one shirt that can be adjusted to thousands of orders automatically. So you do the job once in terms of product development and the software and the platform guarantees that everything will be current and the garment will fit. It's really interesting. And I mean, I just, I'm just my mind spinning a little bit about the, what the future of garment manufacturing is, especially in places like Southeast Asia, where it's very human oriented now. Um, what, how, so you talk about the 10 year plan. I mean, and you also mentioned that in 2030, you hope this company is going to be growing a lot faster and, and big and be bigger. What, so what is the disintermediation or the, um, I don't know, maybe augmentation of current manu uh, garment manufacturing that you're hoping to, to lead over the next uh, eight to 10 years? Well, at the moment, what we have developed is technology to enable our customers to change their business model or to improve their business model. So if I take the example of our three markets, they would react differently. I was taking the example of fashion on demand, which is clearly a change in business model, in which case we would spend time with the customers to help them make this change. And we know that there are many obstacles to making these kind of changes. But if you move to furniture, uh, the, the COVID crisis helped uh, help us because today close to one furniture out of two is made to, to order. Why? Because the, the furniture industry discovered that making to order was limiting the risk, having less stock of finished product and being paid in advance by the consumer when they place the order. So the business model is much better. You generate cash in, instead of using cash and, and you don't have inventory that you cannot sell. So in furniture, furniture on demand, which is the equivalent of fashion on demand, is something that already exists in the business model of our customers. So we would help them to implement the technology. So there is no change in business model. Right? In fashion, it is. And if you move to automotive, automotive is a mass market production uh, uh, um, uh, oriented uh, sector. So uh, a lot of, of uh, uh, car manufacturers want to uh, customize the interior of the car, but that's not something they are very familiar with because they are all fan of their process that they have improved year after year. And here the difficulty is that need to stop being in continuity and change a certain number of things. So they, they are very strong at what they do and we help them improving and improving, but at a point of time, a certain number of process will require a major drastic change. So where we can help is to do this change, to accompany this change, because we have experts, we did it a certain number of times, we know what are the drawbacks, we know exactly what you need to set, the profile of the people you need to have, and so on and so on. So that's for the, let's say the coming three to four years. Now, if we look at the long term, it is clear that we could provide to our platform a certain number of, of tools that would enable to simplify the supply chain, to simplify the intermediation, as you said, uh, between the different companies. But this is the next step. That's not something we have developed now, but we're thinking about it for the next period. Great. Really interesting. And so there's a lot of buzz and excitement around perpetual software companies turning into subscription or software as a service companies. 
Um, you mentioned that some of your, your customers are on various steps of their journey to being more cloud-based and subscription-based. So can you just talk about, give us some framework for where Electra is in, in its, on its journey from you know, being a perpet- more of a perpetual license provider to a SaaS company? So in, uh, since 2018, all the software we introduce are cloud-based and on a SaaS mode. All the legacy software exists both in a SaaS mode and in perpetual license. Uh, our existing customers that have already a certain number of copies of, of uh, software may want to buy additional copies a traditional way uh, through licenses because it doesn't make sense to have one on a SaaS mode and 20 in, uh, in perpetual license mode. But despite that, for all the new customers and for all the new software for everyone, existing and new customer, we sell in a SaaS mode. And today, two-thirds of our sales of software are in a SaaS mode. A lot of companies claim that the move to the SaaS model is beneficial to the financial statements. So are there any margin or cash flow benefits um, from becoming more of a subscription-based company versus selling more perpetual licenses? So this is true, but in practice, you reduce the the result short-term to increasing long-term because you get perpetual revenues, but you get less at the beginning and and, uh, more over time. Uh, We didn't make this move for that. We did the move for one reason, is our software are too rich in terms of functionality. And when we sell upfront a license, people would compare to the competition. They can pay a premium, but there is a limit to this premium. If we are two times the price or three times the price, they would say it's too expensive. The interest for us of selling in a SaaS mode is that we can make progressive selling, which is we sell for usage. The difference is we sell... In a SaaS mode, we sell based on the usage of the software. We don't sell based on the number of software or a fixed perimeter. So that way, customer can start small and grow. The entry level, the entry point is, is lower, but the potential is, is more important on the future. So uh, the main idea of us selling in a SaaS mode is not only to have recurring revenue, but to enable the customer to pay only for what they use at a point of time. And we have many reasons to push them to upgrade uh, the, the usage of the software because the more they use it, it's a little addictive, the more they want to use mm-hmm. functionalities. Got it. And how, how do you think about um, increase, is it, as, a, as you move more into SaaS, do you feel like the switching costs become higher and it becomes a stickier product? Um, and you talk a little bit about retention and how you, how you think about that over time with, as a new model rolls out. We never had this problem because uh, uh, the, the worst year in our history, we lost 1% of our customer using our, 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 our traditional software unless they went bankrupt. I mean, only 1% decide to change vendor or stop the usage of the software. So that was not our issue. But it is true that when software are in the cloud in general, it creates more retention, uh, but uh, we didn't do it for that. We are in a special situation. We had very loyal customers that were using a lot of the software. And so we did the move for other reasons that many people in the industry. And you talk about the importance of having an expert in addition to the software. So how big a component is a service and providing expertise um, when it comes to you know maintaining your relationships and expanding your relationships with, with with your customers, is that a big component? Is there still a big human element here? 
There is, because uh, uh, artificial intelligence is, uh, needs to learn. And we are in very complex worlds where everything is, is different, maybe different from one minute to another. If you take the more complex thing in fashion, people would change production maybe sometimes many, many times a day and they need to adjust and they don't know how to adjust fast enough. Algorithms can take over, but then each fabric is different, each type of production is different. So uh, algorithms can solve maybe 80% of the issue, but when you put an expert behind the algorithms, then you get a much stronger result. So what we did is servitize the software, software as a service, servitizing the software. And then we add software which are expertise and we sell a package where the customer use the software, but it's connected to our expertise center. And the, the, what they do with the software is monitor from remote. So we can come back to the customer, explain how to optimize what they're doing, send alerts saying that this is not the way it should be used and so on. So the, the, the combination of expertise and software as a service really is what creates the value. The more it goes, the more the customer is autonomous, learns and so on. But every time they do something more complex, more sophisticated, they change production as an example, or production cycle or types, then we can help further. So we believe that the mix of the two is really the winning combination. And would you say the total addressable market expand significantly now with us with the cloud version that's not so expensive and that, that you kind of pay as you go and you can upgrade as opposed to you know a very expensive upfront cost is that is that one of the reasons you did this is because just a lot more the addressable market gets larger or not necessarily not exactly in fact what we did is in 2008 after the subprime crisis uh, all our competitors uh, decided to uh, reduce their price and we wanted to protect the company. And so we decided to go premium and increase our prices. And doing that, we decided to target only the top end of the market. So we didn't want to, to get as many orders as we could, but focus on the customer that would value our proposal. What's happening now is we're making progress. And so we can target a wider base of customer because they understand the difference better. If I take an example, when a company in Bangladesh wants to cut, the first thing they, they look for is a cutter which is not expensive. After a while, they understand that the quality of the cutting machine defines their profitability. Because if you, the fabric is about 60% of their cost, if we save a few percent of the fabric, it may be equivalent to their profit at the end of the year. So uh, they understand the value, which is not just the functionality to cut, but also how to improve the profitability of the company. So uh, if you combine this with the fact that we enable customer now to progressively acquire uh, the, the, the value of the software, then we can go keep our pos premium positioning, but target a wider market. What we don't want to do is to go for as many customers as we could or the, the biggest market share. We are not interested in that. We want to have a premium positioning and let the customer who value this buy from us and disregard the people who are not ready to pay for this premium. I think you've almost answered my next question, but I want to know if there are other elements as well. So you talk about high retention. You talk about focus on the premium, so that that would suggest you know high gross margins. This company's generated you know margin gross margins in the seventy percent range for a long time. So 
anything else about your business or your relationships that allow you to continue or to produce such high margins? And I guess one other little caveat there is that it's interesting. This isn't just a pure software. This is hardware plus software. So I'm just interested in how that impacts margins, you know, going forward and, and historically. First of all, it's not only hardware and software, but it's hardware, software, data, and services. And our offer combines the four components. That's what makes it strong. When we, we speak about a cutter, it's not purely hardware. The value of our cutter is the intelligence embedded in the, in the hardware or the software that pilots and optimize the cutting, plus the fact that we can Uh, manage the data because the machine is connected to the internet. So not only we can manage this particular machine, but we can also benchmark compared to similar production, uh, to the productivity obtained on this kind of fabricant and so on. And we have the expert that can leverage all this by explaining the customer how to improve their productivity. So one of the, the, the other elements that we have is that we have 500 people in services around the world. Well, one of the things that we change over time and we developed over time was that we developed significantly our services uh, and we developed the service not only going on site, but from, uh, uh, from our expertise center remotely. Uh, to give you an example today, on the new generation of Qatar, 92% of the incidents are sold without going on site. The advantage of that is that if there is a problem, the machine is back to production in less than one hour. And uh, in average, we have uh, close to a 99% uptime in automotive where people cut seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So the machine would produce 98, 99% in average of the time, which is a, a fantastic uh, result. But also the people uh, that are based in our call centers, in our expertise centers, can enable the customer to improve the quality and the productivity remotely. So this is where we were, let's say, uh, one year and a half ago, two years ago now. And now we have developed another level, which we, call, uh, which we call customer success, which is we take the objective of the customer, which could be, I want to improve my productivity by 10%. I want to reduce my fabric consumption by 3% or whatever. And we help them monitor the progress to that. Uh, we have dashboards that automatically compile all the data from the technology they use from us being the cutting machine or the software and that compare to their objectives. So they can follow in real time where they are and how they can move forward to this objective. And our expert would help them to do what's necessary to get there. So our service changed from being, being able to use well our technology to using the technology to achieve a certain number of objectives. And that's probably what makes the, the most important difference. Interesting. And, you know, this company generates revenue from all around the world. And you talked about like the 20 to 22 period being evangelizing your technology period. So what is the strategy to, to roll this out to either new customers or new, new geographies? Is, is one of the barriers like people don't even know it exists or is it more of a we you have to change your your production model in some way that's just it's kind of um, disruptive and people are hesitant to move without you know whatever some some level of planning and trepidation first of all when there is a new technology at the beginning you catch the attention of early adopters that are ready to take risk to be in advance on others And after that, once you have a certain number of references, then you can catch the attention of, of other people. 
when we did the rollout of our new offering, we did it country by country because each country, the culture, the habits were different. If you take automotive, automotive is, is a market which is working about the same way everywhere in the world. You have the, the if you, we speak about the, the large automotive OEMs, you have agents for Asia and Lear, and Lear in China works like Lear in Mexico. But uh, so there is a Lear world, an agent world, a Foresia world, but there is no geography uh, differences. While in fashion, the history of fashion is such that fashion in France, in Italy, in the US or in China doesn't work the same way. And this means that the changes that people are ready to do are not the same. And the, 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 the barrier to, the, to entry to this new technology is very different from country to country. So what we did is to start small in each country and then try to spread. And there are countries where we overpassed the, the objections and countries where we still have a certain objection that we need to overpass. So it takes some years to, to introduce new technologies. And as you said, one of the problems is that people don't know it exists. But then when they don't know it exists, uh, if we tell them it exists, it doesn't mean they're going to jump on it because they need to think about everything it would change for them. Okay? And if I take the two examples I took before, fashion on demand and furniture on demand, when we introduced the two products about in the same time in 2018, we were convinced that fashion on demand would grow much faster than furniture on demand. And in fact, it was the reverse because the business model of furniture company changed faster because of the situation and because it saved this company from having difficulty in terms of cash during the, the, uh, during the lockdowns. So they love fab uh, manufacturing on demand. And today they are looking for solutions to help them manufacturing on demand. So the market is ready to move on. Well, in fashion, it is not exactly that. They use all their cash to finance their inventory, to finance the lockdown of their shops, to go on the internet. So they are not ready to move and change uh, business in the model very easily because they have no more cash to do that. But I could imagine in a world fo more focused on ESG and you know, lim you know, limiting environmental impact and limiting waste, that there is a huge secular trend behind you especially when it comes to fashion because there's you know there's just so much waste associated with that process is that a, is that a good ass uh, assessment of the of the situation it is if first if we take something very basic a cutting equipment in general we save three to five percent more than any equipment and if people cut by hand usually it would be 10 to 20 percent we express it that way so in average we would say we, we use 85 percent of the fabric but put it a different way the waste of 15% of the fabric, while with the competitive technology, it would be 20%. So we say five out of 20, 25% of, of the, uh, the fabric, which is destroyed. So this is a big saving. Now, also when you manufacture on demand, you don't have inventory that you don't use. You don't destroy inventory when it's not sold. So there are a lot of advantages of this technology to help, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, minimizing the fabric usage, but also minimizing the carbon footprint. Uh, all our solutions are very green. They use uh, a little of electricity. Because we exchange every information in the cloud, there are less physical exchanges. So many things that we do are very green. We didn't just point them as very green in the past as much as we should have. But in reality, we are already there for, for some years.
And when you do go into a new region and new territory, do you work with distributors or other partners or do you stand up your own operations when you go into a new region? So Lectra was present worldwide since uh, today close to 20 years. That's a decision I took in the beginning of the 90s and then in 2000, we were present everywhere in the world. And we kept agents where uh, we had good agents. So in a very few countries, uh, in some cases, we bought back our previous agent. We didn't work with distributors, meaning that the agent would sell, but we would invoice the customer and we would decide who invoiced the service and deliver the service. Now, Gerber has a certain number of distributors. So now we inherited distributors, but we, we don't like to work with distributors because you cannot sell premium and not control the message and control the delivery. So what we do is we are negotiating with these distributors to move them as agent uh, or to take over their business if they don't want to continue. But globally speaking, uh, we are not fans of distributors. We're fans of direct sales because we sell very premium technology. We need to explain the value to the customer and deliver it. It's very important we deliver the right value. And we, we've touched on competition at, at a number of different points, but I want to dig in a little more and understand about, I, I think I understand about how you're differentiating yourselves, but are there, I mean, this seems like a market that is just you know ripe for you know a lot of growth, you know, expanding total addressable market, you know, more adoption of, of this of your technologies or similar technologies. So what does a competitive set look like? And are there any, I don't know, big, well-funded software companies, you know, starting to look at this space or, or not necessarily? So if we look at what we do, we roughly have three lines of products. We have the, the CAT product. Here, the market is already mature. Uh, we had a significant part of the, the market in Europe. Gerber had a significant part in uh, uh, the Americas and especially in North America. And uh, in Asia, it's Chinese software that have the majority of the market. So this is not something we can change because uh, a CAD software is very pregnant. When you, when you change software, it costs a multiple of the software, so you don't change very often. Um, regarding the, the cutting equipment, in the past, we considered that there were three levels. What we would call the low-cost players, many Chinese players. It's the majority of sales in number of cutters, but it's cheaper technology. Okay? Uh, Lectra on the top end with premium technology and Gerber in the middle with what we called good enough technology at that time. So not the best one, but not the cheapest one with a good quality price ratio. So today that Lectra and Gerber are one, uh, our main competitors are low-cost players. And we don't want to compete with low-cost players on prices. We want to educate a certain number of customers to see the value of our premium technology. So our, our share of the market will change when more people will be convinced of the value of this premium technology. And we are working at that. In addition, all the new technology that we issue since 2017, brings additional value to, to, uh, uh, to the existing customer, being our customer, our competitive customer. As an example, 
we have a software that can compute the usage of fabric in 30 seconds with the uh, 1% approximation. So you design a garment, you know that the usage of the fabric would be 85% as an example. You change the, the, the format of the color, we, you make it a little wider or smaller, and you know immediately how much it costs. So this brings a lot of value. We can also help customers to optimize the usage of the fabric, no matter what kind of software they use. So we have a certain number of new development that can be used by any customers and that are easy to access premium technology. After that, solutions like fashion on demand or furniture on demand are a little more complex. Uh, they are more expensive. So people take time to get to that, but it will come. I'm confident it will come. And I'm confident we're on the right strategy. We're speaking about the 70% gross margin uh, on, on competitors, on equipment, purely on equipment. The usual gross margin is between 15 and 30%. So you can see the difference. Uh, in average, we do, in absolute value, we do about four times their margin when we sell an equipment. So that's a big difference, of course, that, that's what makes the results. So if we look at the software, there is another part. So the, as I was speaking about the CAT software, I was speaking about the equipment. Now on the equipment, we have huge margin, but we have also a return on investment, which is uh, fantastic, which is if the customer just make the computation, with the, the additional fabric they save, they win more money than if they get the machine from the competition for free. So clearly, once they start learning and computing, they go in our direction. It happened first in the automotive market because the, the automotive is driven by engineers, by, by people who do computation on return on investment, and they have stable production. So it's easy to compute, while in fashion, it's more complex. So globally speaking, we convince the automotive customer first. And in automotive today, we have about two-thirds of the worldwide market. Uh, and we came from 15% in 2006. And when we had the first uh, generation of cutters that were connected to the internet, to our expertise center, we moved in three years from 15 to 60%. So this uh, on the, the, the equipment market, we can put it a different way. If we look at the global market, we have only less than 20% of the market. But if we look at the premium market, we have to probably 75% of this market today. And what we believe is the premium market is going to expand. Because once people have covered the basic needs, I cut, they understand that the cutter is a way to improve their bottom line. Uh, so, and the third line is on new software. Here we have more competitors. When you look at PLM, when we look at the software we have on e-commerce, we are still challenger on these product lines. Uh, but our competitors are, are specialized in one, on, on one product line only. And it appears that this company has been able to innovate quite quickly and, and move, you know, and, and, and move to where the industry was going before others in, in a lot of ways. So what is your general approach to R&D spending? And, and what do you attribute that ability, you know, from a technological perspective to be able to be ahead of the curve? I will start by a major decision we took in 2005. All our competitors decide to open a factory in China and manufacture in China. We decide to stay in France and invest in R&D and innovation in order to uh, be more competitive. And at that time, we did a three-year study in China that was proving that we would have saved 30% on our manufacturing costs moving to China. And today, we know that we manufacture in France for 30% less than our competitors in China. Uh, 
all this through innovation and R&D. At the same time, this is how we came to having machines that were connected through, through the cloud on the, uh, to our expertise center. And so uh, uh, the decision that went with, the, with the, the, the decision not to manufacture in China was to increase the R&D. At that time, the R&D spending were about 7% of our revenue. Today, uh, we spent about 13% of our revenue in R&D. Also, we moved to what we call open innovation. Uh, two years ago, we have an innovation center that works openly with innovation center of our customers, uh, with other software or equipment companies, uh, sometimes with competitors, uh, so that we try to be in advance, listening to everyone which is thinking forward. And this help us, uh, helped us a lot. And we have been doing that, obviously, for a certain number of years. And, you know, it, it's interesting to me um, to think about how someone, you know, as, a, as a, either an, a manager or, you know, an, an, an organization, you know, positions itself to be, you know, the innovator. And one of the interesting things about your background is that, you know, it's, it, you know, you, you're, you, from what I can understand, you and your brother got involved in venture, in venture capital, and then it eventually led to you being CEO. I'm just interested in, in how, you know, how you developed all these philosophies and how you got into this position in, in, as it, with, to provide context for you know, the success that this company has had. So my brother was a venture capitalist. I joined him a little later, but he invested in Lectra at the very beginning. The company was five people and doing nearly nothing in revenue, just have sold a few systems. Uh, and he uh, grew the company with the founders until the company went public in 86. And then the company nearly went bankrupt in, uh, in, uh, at the end of the 80s because it grew too fast and uh, uh, the costs were growing much faster than the revenue. The margin were going down. Uh, it was short of cash. And uh, we decided to take over the company in 91. Uh, and at that time, the company was losing $200,000 a day uh, which was a lot of money. And we had invested uh, at that time uh, uh, 20, uh, $20 million, uh, $16 million exactly, which was what uh, part of what we have earned in the last, uh, in the previous 20 years. So uh, we knew we have uh, about uh, 80 days to survive. And uh, we did survive, obviously. And we, we turned around the company in three years. And then we, we became world number one. But we decided to, we were more like, let's say the, the business angels of today. It was the beginning of venture capital. It was not as structured as now. And we, we invest all, all, all in all in about 30 companies, all in, in, uh, in the technology fields for medical technology or general technology in software. And Lectra was one of them. So we decided in 91 to invest drastically in Lectra and, and change focus. Uh, moving from being venture capitalist to being a uh, majority shareholder of Lectra. Uh, and uh, we turn around the company and develop it. But personally, I've always been CEO. In fact, uh, I start by managing a port a portfolio on the stock market for uh, wealthy individuals and um, uh, running a company which was specialized in, in managing assets on the stock market. And uh, after three weeks, I was CEO. So I've never done anything else in my life than being a CEO. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure I could do something else. And even when I joined my brother 
uh, in our venture capital company. I was acting as the CEO when there was no CEO in one of our investment company. So when I took over Lectra, the difference was that I always faced company that were growing fast. And I, I was for the first time in front of a company in a turnaround position. That was, was new for me. So obviously we succeed in turning around the company, becoming number one. And then now I'm more in my comfort zone, which is how to develop the company since something like 20 years. And, and going along that a little bit, I'm always interested, you know, because you were kind of thrust into the CEO position at a very difficult time. I mean, I'm interested in how you developed um, a sense of, 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 of how to hire the right people. So, you know, in some of your presentations, you talk a lot about how you've improved the executive committee at this company and made some changes. I'm interested in what traits you look for um, in an employee and what have you learned about hiring over your tenure at Lectra? First of all, I consider there is only one main asset in a, in a high-tech company, it's the people. In fact, the people make the company, the rest is not true. So uh, uh, developing Lectra, I focus mainly on developing the people. In a high-tech company like ours, we have mainly MBAs to sell and engineers to develop the products. So globally speaking, you need to be able to manage people that have a lot of expectation about their position, their future, the interest of the job they're doing. Uh, the value I, I consider the most are uh, transparency and good sense. I like people that are smart enough to take good decisions. And I never sanction if people take a wrong decision if they did it in good faith, because I consider that the most important is people uh, feel free to take decisions. So the way I work is based on a principle which I, 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 that I took from the, the, the previous CEO of AXA, which is the number two world, uh, biggest insurance company in the world. And he called it Democrator, which is democracy before the decision, the decision taken by the person who has the power to take the decision. And then uh, everybody needs to apply the decision or leave. And I always work that way which means that I listened to many people. When we wrote the strategy uh, uh, every 10 years, uh, uh, I, I circulate the strategy to close to 200 people and have one-to-one -one with each of the persons. So all the top managers, selected number of engineers, salespeople, and so on. And I asked them to cover my copy in red and say what they don't like, what they don't believe. And I argue with them. At the end, when you get a strategy, it's waterproof because you have tested all the drawbacks. Now, uh, if I take an example of Democrature, in 2018, I asked all the managers what we should do and a certain number of salespeople regarding prices, and 100% of them were in favor of lowering the prices, but we increased them because none of them convinced me that we should lower the price. Uh, so, uh, Democrature is taking your responsibility. If I have decisions that are mine, I always take my decision listening to everybody but based on what I believe we should do, not on the consensus. And then at the end, I explain why I've made my decision. And if people are not happy, they can leave. Now, at the beginning, I had many people who left the company after this kind of decision. Uh, when I took over in 91, the first time I explained my strategy, I had the 18 uh, main managers in the room and 16 of them were gone in three weeks because they, they said, no, we don't believe we won't do it. Say, so, okay, no problem. It's like in a family, we divorce and I keep the house. So, uh, and this happened two times in the 90s, 
two times in a row. It happened again in 1994 when I announced the new strategy. Many of the managers said, we don't believe in the strategy. So I tried to convince them. They said, but we don't believe, we won't do it. So, okay, no problem, you can leave. But since then, I've learned a lot because today nobody leaves, which is the rule is the same, but people have learned that. And also I've applied this democratic logic to other people, which is if I delegate to one of the key managers, especially at the executive committee level, and it's their call, I never criticize saying I would have done something differently. And if I challenge before, I consider I have an opinion, they have the decision. So it's very important to define where to delegate to people because giving a blank check doesn't work. So you need to define objectives and means and, and, and uh, let them work within these objectives. So that's one of the rules. And also, I think that we, uh, we, uh, we work with people that have a lot of experience. We didn't have a lot of turnaround in the management of the company. We promote several people recently. And we had some good addition from uh, Gerber and also from the, the, the company we acquired. That, uh, uh, so we have a very strong management team, but I, I believe there is a culture at Lectra. In fact, people love the culture or hate the culture. So if they join and they don't like it, they don't stay. But when they stay, they love it the more, uh, the more they stay. So one of the reasons is people are at the heart of everything we do. We don't think the company uh, uh, around the technology or the product. We think the company around the people. And that, that point of view, I think, is often rare in, in technology companies because people think that the best software wins and that's, you know, yes. and, and, and that's fine. Also, you know, another thing that happens with, with kind of, you know, high growth technology companies is capital allocation can be, you know, just not a focus. It's not a skill set of the founder, often of someone who, who was like, who builds a technology doesn't necessarily understand capital allocation. But when I look at you, I mean, you started your career in venture capital and, and you had, and, and you came CEO pretty early on, but it's interesting that it seems like you've developed a capital allocation philosophy that's, you know, you know, kind of like very, you know, that, 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 that speaks to a lot of investors like myself. How did you develop that? And, and maybe to describe how you do think about capital allocation. First of all, uh, that's something I've always done before joining Lectra. So I just continued to do that. And, and uh, when I joined Lectra, uh, uh, the, the, most of the people were looking at me as a financial person. And they were looking at my brother, Andre, as a financial person. Andre was more an entrepreneur. And, and of course, he had to understand finance to do, uh, uh, to do venture capital and to invest in companies, but he was more like an entrepreneur working with the, the, the founders of the companies. And I was more like a CEO working also with founders of the company or being a CEO myself uh, all day long. So people view me as a financial people for years. In reality, if I understand finance very well, uh, it was not my main knowledge. My main knowledge was... Uh, engineering and, and marketing, and I combine both. And, and that, that's, uh, that's why probably we are where we are. Now, of course, I, I never forget my financial background. And uh, I consider that uh, when you have a public company, you are at the service of the shareholders. So today I have 14% of the company, 86% is in the public, and I work for the shareholders. So it's normal that we, we look very carefully about the return on investment, the, the dividends that we serve, and so on. And another question on capital allocation. So this with the Gerber deal, it's really the first time the company, from going back as far as I could see, had net debt on its balance sheet. So 
in general, how do you think about leverage and what made you comfortable adding a little bit of debt to the balance sheet for the Gerber deal? Well, in reality, if you look at the numbers at the end of September, we had only 20 million of debts. Uh, and if we have not acquired the two startups that we have acquired, we would be at zero debt. Uh, we we uh, raised a, a credit of 140 million uh, euros, but it was not only to cover the Gerber acquisition, it was also to be able to do other acquisition. When you look at our cash flow, uh, at the end of this year, we'll be close to, to zero debt company again. So I, as a, uh, I am not a fan of leverage for high-tech companies. Uh, leverage is something fantastic when things goes well. Then when it doesn't go well, and uh, it's, it's, of course, uh, minus. You have banks that said, oh, you were a very rich company. You were reliable. Now you're a dangerous company. We are afraid you cannot reimburse or whatever. Uh, then um, I consider that a high-tech company should not have long-term debt. On this, it is maybe not what most of the shareholders believe, but uh, this is the discussion I always have with them. I'm ready to, to have debts as long as we can reimburse them in a period of three years and with certain certainty. Uh, I'm not ready to leverage the, 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 what we do and to take risks for the company. And I think the last 30 years and especially the last few years uh, showed I was right because, in fact, it was never quiet. We had several crises. We came out of the crisis stronger, but there was the 2001 crisis with the internet crisis and, and, and then also the, the, uh, the, the, the Twin Towers uh, um, uh, September, September 11 events, uh, which stopped order for all over the world. In one day, we went from 200 orders a day to zero for three weeks everywhere in the world. Uh, and we established our, our business at two-thirds of what it was before, uh, uh, before these events. Uh, so we learned that. We also learned that uh, the subprime that may look very far from our activity create a lot of tension uh, on our customers. And so at the end, it reduced and, and, and create a lot of problems on our markets. We also learned that the COVID creates a very difficult, very difficult situation. When the COVID happened, we knew that no matter what, we would be positive in terms of results and we would generate a positive cash flow. So when you are in that position, you sleep at night, you take the good decisions and you look forward. And for me, sleeping at night is the most important thing for a CEO when you, you're not always looking at will I survive in three months or will I face crisis, you can take decisions on the long term. And I think one of the reasons we acquired Gerber in the most difficult periods, which was uh, we, we start the discussion in the, in the worst period of the, the COVID crisis is because we knew we would get out of the crisis stronger. And, 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 strong, and we were stronger than all our competitors. So we knew it was the right momentum. And, and that's something, it's a fantastic asset. So for me, the number thing I value is to be able to sleep at night and, and, and look at things long term. Well, as a value investor myself, I, I totally appreciate that, um, that sentiment. You know, as, as I think about this conversation, all the things that you have going on, you know, you're integrating an acquisition, you, you know, you have, um, you know, you are endeavoring to help your, some of your customers change their business model. It sounds like you have a lot on your plate, but, you know, you know, as a firm at Coastry, we always like to, to, to distill things down to a few key variables. So what do you think are three or four things that this company absolutely has to get right? for the stock to be a good investment going forward for both your employees and your shareholders? 
Well, I would say in the coming uh, 12 months, it's to deliver what we have promised regarding integration of Gerber. We know that integrating a competitor is always difficult, so we need to show it works well. And we also need to deliver the numbers that we have published as guidance for 2022. If I look midterm, we want in the next strategic roadmap, 2023 uh, to 2025, to go one step further in, in changing dimension, which will be a combination of internal growth and external growth. So uh, we will start looking not only at startups for the acquisition, but also to extend our business and our footprint. So the, this is where uh, people would judge us probably on the midterm, uh, the capacity to grow. If we look at the numbers, our market cap was about 500 million euros when we announced a new strategy in February 2017, today it's about 1.5 billion. So we multiplied by three. And our goal is to multiply again by three in the coming years. Of course, it's a goal. It's not something easy to do. Uh, but to do that, we know exactly uh, what we have to do. And one of the main key indicators at LECWA is what we call the security ratio, which is the, the level of recurring revenue, uh, the level of cost which is covered by recurring revenue, including the R&D cost, because we expand all the R&D. We never capitalize R&D. Uh, so today we are close to 100%, which means that uh, today we're at 96%. So globally, we, we pass the break-even of the year at in, uh, some, somewhere in the middle of January. Uh, and uh, we target to be above the 100%, which is no matter what happened, if we do no sales, no additional sales in the year, we'll be profitable. So that's the security part. And then the growing part will come for the development of the new technology and all the new product that we launch and the capacity to spread this technology to more customers, because today uh, we have several hundreds of customers using this technology, but that's only a few percent of our customer base. And you took over this company at a time where it was burning cash and it was a very difficult situation. It seems like you've done a lot of things right between uh, then and now. But I'd love to hear about some errors or mistakes that you made over, you know, something that stands out like a decision you made that went wrong or a decision you didn't make, something you should have pursued that you, you, you ended up not pursuing um, along the way. So in, in a high tech company, you have two main risks. Uh, developing new technology uh, too late or developing new technology too early. And two or three times in our life, we developed technology too early. The market was not ready. It cost a lot of money for no results. Sometime 10 years after, we can take a, again the momentum and, and capitalize on what we've done. But the main mistake we've done was to believe too much in a certain number of innovation that didn't found really the market. So if I had to say the main mistake, it's certainly this one. Uh, then, of course, uh, uh, sometimes uh, I put trust in people and uh, I was uh, disappointed. Uh, but I think that you have to choose. Either you give people a chance and you trust them. And sometimes you give trust to people and sometimes they disappoint you, but you have to choose. Either you trust or you don't trust. And if you, you trust then you have disappointment. And sometimes I was wrong in trusting some people. Um, and then uh, on the opposite, if you don't delegate and you don't trust, then you don't have really a team and a family and, and people that, that, that are convinced that they can contribute to the, the success of the whole company. So probably two main mistakes are these ones. 
And as you think about your legacy at this company and once you what you want to leave it with when you eventually decide to step away as CEO, what either cultural elements or operational elements or even capital allocation elements would you like to you know endure in this company? You know, whenever you're not you know sitting in the CEO seat anymore. Well, to succeed, you need to have a vision. Then you need to go from vision to execution, and you'd be to be, you need to be excellent in execution. The, 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 the success is combining the vision and the execution. And I think that's something I've done well. Uh, having always a vision and making sure we deliver. Uh, and that's not so easy to do. Uh, you have to be modest. You have to learn. You learn from your mistakes. Uh, you, uh, the more you do mistakes, I spoke about the big ones, but I, I do small mistakes every day because if not, you don't take decisions. I, di- I always consider that when it was time to decide, I decide. And so even if I don't have the right information and so on, so the more I have information, the less I do mistake, but sometimes I have to choose and uh, um, it's not a science. So you do mistakes every day. So the fact to look at the long term, to look at the capacity to execute and never look backward is very important. You look backward to analyze what you can do better for the future, but never regret any decision. That's a good, that's an interesting way to frame it. Um, never, you know, look backward just to learn, but don't regret your decisions. Um, this has been an incredible discussion and I've learned a lot about your business and your philosophy. Um, so we're going to close with our favorite question. The one we ask all our guests is what do you, what would you say is the most misunderstood or underappreciated, uh, sorry, underappreciated aspect of your business? Uh, the potential of the industry for that zero, especially because um, the industry has been a little forgotten in the U S uh, because the technology, all the IT companies uh, took the lead and people believe a lot in technology, but the traditional industry like automotive or fashion or furniture or sometimes look as the past, where I believe these are fundamental needs of the, uh, of, of the individuals and so it's also the future. Uh, so the industry is very important and industry for that zero is a way for this industry to jump in, into the next century. So uh, I think this is not so well understood in the US. It is understood partly in Europe in some countries, but not everywhere. And probably China understand this better, but start from a lower standpoint, from a lower point. So globally, I think that the most difficult for our shareholders is to understand the potential and the risk associated because we can be wrong by being there too early or too late, uh, but most obviously too early. Um, and so that's the most difficult thing to explain. The business model of Lectra is something that our shareholders, our investors understand pretty well. The number speaks from themselves. I think that we are very transparent. We're considering, we are considered by all our shareholders and we have about 300 one-to-ones per year. So we had a lot of feedback uh, as having a very transparent, very complete information quarterly and on the strategy and on the long term. But the most difficult is to explain the potential of the technology. Well, Daniel, this has been an incredible discussion. Um, Thank you so much for your time. Um, I really hope, uh, you know, as people listen to this, they've learned a lot about your business and, um, you know, some of the mega trends that are behind it. So again, thanks for this time and uh, good luck with everything in the future. Thanks so much. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. 
We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at cobestreetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.